Welcome back. You're watching Stockwatch with me, Juliet Televi, and joining me to take your questions this evening are Jonathan Fisher from PSG Well, Santon Grayston, and independent analyst Jimmy Moyaha. If you'd like to send questions to us, please SMS 41392, email us at stockwatch at bdtv.co.za, or tweet at Business Day TV using the hashtag Stockwatch. Jonathan, Jimmy, good to see you both there this evening. Uh, Jimmy, if I may start with you, last week we were talking about how good news is good news in the market. Uh, and I wonder if that all changed on Friday when good news became bad news again. Um, and I'm referring, of course, to the non-farm payrolls reports that was blew everyone's forecast completely out of the water. Over 500,000 jobs created in the U.S. economy. I think the est estimates were for about 180,000 or thereabouts. Um, and it, it seemed to have a, a subsequent negative effect on the markets. Are we back to that sort of cycle where... Um, anything that may uh, force the, the Federal Reserve's hand is, is bad news for the rest of us. Well, I think we, we started off on uh, a path where sort of as the news started to come out, it started to form more of um, a substantive uh, support base for the Fed's opinion. And it, start, uh, it started to make a lot more sense with, with the data points that were being released prior to this last um, jobs numbers uh, report around um, how the U.S. has been handling their uh, inflationary picture and their interest rate hiking cycle. So everything started to look like it was marrying up together. And typically when you see uh, the non-farm numbers or the job numbers, they, they, the variant um, is either 5,000 this way or 10,000 that way. It's not a four-fold increase. We didn't expect <laughs> it to be four times higher than what it was, or, or three and a half times or so. But I mean, at the end of the day, the, the, the increase was so significant that the market was not only shocked, but that then um, forced uh, investors and, and institutions to then say, but then should the Fed not be rethinking um, their interest rate uh, stance or their policy stance at this stage, because surely this is going to have a significant impact. So I think the magnitude of the release of data is what drove uh, markets to react the, the way they did. I mean, we saw the gold price had been inching up towards the $1,950 a barrel, uh, sorry, an ounce mark, uh, in, on the Wednesday leading up to the non-farms announcement. But today, I mean, we're, we're trading back at $1,860 uh, an ounce. So you're, you're seeing that the, the market had priced in all of the data points up to that point, and we had priced in an increase or a decrease in the non-farms numbers, but within the, the allotted or the typical variance that we're used to seeing. So for us to go through to 500,000 jobs, that was a significant shock to the yeah. market. And the market is now digesting and saying, but then should the Fed not be, or should will the Fed then use this as they have to, from a data perspective to say, are they going to adjust their policy? Are we going to see a more dovish policy? Are we going to see a more hawkish policy? Yeah. What What is their stance and how are we going to get that out of there? Okay. Jonathan, um, for you though, do you foresee though a point where, um, this is actually good news and it's, it's good for companies um, and it's good for uh, company growth and uh, profits, et cetera, et cetera. Or is it, only, it, is it only really what the Federal Reserve does with interest rates that sh we should worry about? Or can we kind of put that to one side and actually look at the strength of the US economy, say maybe the world isn't tipping over into a global recession and that's actually good for the companies that we invest in? Look, I think it's a two-edged sword. Um, you know, I think inflation and interest rates are the biggest worry at the moment. So, yes, it is good news. It's good news for 
I guess the U.S. economy, um, knowing that most people are employed there, um, the problem is, you know, if employment is growing at such a rapid rate, you've got to ask yourself, well, what kind of capacity issues can that put on the whole labor market? And hence, you know, you get back to the inflation story. Well, if that's the case, well, then surely um, labor inflation is going to be a big impacting um, uh, or a big impactor with the total inflation um, of that economy. So that is a difficult one. Um, hmm. You know, you guys have just spoken about it at length, but I mean, at the end of the day, so the Fed raised the rate by 25 pips at their last meeting. And the view is before this number came out that that's going to happen at the next meeting. I think it's on the 9th or 10th of March. Um, I guess the inflation number, the, the, the core inflation number um, and the headline inflation number that's going to come through just prior to that um, will be the main um, uh, driving factor to what the Fed actually does. Because right now we know inflation has been tapering off in the States. I think it reached a high of around 9.7 around about July last year. Um, so we want that trajectory to continue um, for the sakes of lower inflation, not only there, but worldwide. Yeah. And of course, lower yeah. interest rates. I mean, that's, that's what we're all aiming for. And, you know, the big question we've been asking ourselves is, okay, this month of January, which was fantastic, please let it come in February <laughs> and March. But <laughs> point being is, is the market taking a view that rates and inflation going forward for the next six to nine months are going to start tapering off? And hence, you know, the markets are taking this view. Well, if that is the case, well, then we need to re-rate you. In other words, you know, when you say re-rate, do you expect a sell-off? Is that what you're saying? No, re-rate on the upside. Oh, That's okay. what you've just okay. seen. So, so, so what I'm saying is, um, you know, in my mind, markets um, have been whacked because of the the high inflation, high interest rate yeah, and yeah. The impact okay. this Sorry, has been having on, the, on company growth and earnings. Yeah. So the opposite is what we're looking for. And let's hope this is the start of it. Yeah. Okay, this job number was ridiculous. It was crazy. <laughs> it was great. But look what it's done to us. <laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, maybe it's not too bad. I mean, the market, Jimmy, came off today, but not dramatically so. What does that say to you? The South African no, look, market I mean, I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we, we have seen, though, that uh, regardless of what's happened um, or, or less or so what's happened in global markets, we have seen that ever since the uh, return or the potential return of Chinese demand has returned uh, to the global picture, we've seen a lot more of a risk-on approach towards emerging markets. Um, South Africa has had a very resilient time on the JSE in terms of emerging markets uh, compared to our peers as well. We know that the JSE has been up for um, the start of the year started off the year quite strongly, um, and we've, we've sort of printed all-time highs already. So I think the resilience that we've seen in our local equity front um, has been a testament to the fact that the sentiment, while still very concerning, uh, or very concerned rather, around the potential of global recessions and a US-led recession and a European recession, um, while the market is still uh, weighing up those factors, for the moment, emerging markets are still providing an attractive return, doing really well, and remaining resilient. So that's why we're seeing that the top 40 still holding on, even though um, you compare it to the likes of the, the, the RAND performance against yeah. uh, major currencies on the currency side, that's not doing too well. But um, on the equity side, the South African equity uh, picture is still providing a, a very attractive 
um, destination and investment return for investors. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about some uh, individual shares. And there's a question on EOH. Um, um, and the question is, how much further does EOH still have left to fall? Because isn't tomorrow the last day of the rights issue? And this is when I get confused about nil paid letters and someone still has to sort of sit me down and explain this to me again. So I'm sorry if I'm going to be completely ignorant here. Um, but Jonathan, um, th the price action has been a bit weird. You know, you had uh, the, the ratio set out a couple of, well, more than a couple of weeks ago, and EOH's uh -huh. shares have just continued to sort of sink below, presumably, that ratio, and then they were down 9% today. So, so what is going on exactly? And do you think now this is the, the flaw, or is there more to fall? I think, to answer the question, is this now the flaw? We're close to the flaw, um, in my mind. Remember, this is a huge, huge rights offer for the company. Um, 600 million rand, of which... 500 million is a rights offer, and I think 100 million is uh, with the BEE consortium. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the ratio is like 2.7 shares for every one that you own. So what's happening here is that current EOH shareholders are being offered a hell of a lot more shares at a discount to what the price was prior to um, the rights being traded, which is about a week or 10 days ago. Um, and quite frankly, I think what's been happening is those shareholders are saying, you know what, we actually don't want more exposure to this company. We've got these rights. They, they cost us nothing. Hence, well, that's why they're called a no-paid letter. Right. You got them for free. Okay, got you. So they're okay. selling them on the market, right? And it's causing pressure. Remember, the take-up price is 130 right? So that's, that's it. Um, the rights will vary in price as supply and demand dictate. Now, supply has been thrown at the market, and hence, people are just offloading. That's what I see. And the, the share price of EOH moves accordingly with that. Um, so, I think once this rights offer is out of the way, you might see the share price stabilize, and in time, start increasing. The bottom line is the company needs to start making decent profits consistently. Yeah. Um, so, I, I just think that the general public out there might have turned around and said, you know, we've got enough exposure to EOH. We don't need more. We can use this money better else, better, better in a better place somewhere else in our portfolio. Okay. Jimmy's, of course, just been loaded. That's what I've seen. Yeah. Okay. That's what I've seen. Okay. All right. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, Jimmy, um, your view, I mean, the fact is that the, the rights offer is underwritten, so there should be no nervousness with, um, with regards to the fact that it's not going to be uh, that EOH is not going to be able to raise the money, right? Yeah, look, um, I think the, the the worries about the, the actual fundraising and all of that, that, that's not too much of a concern. I think what hit the nail on the head is what Jonathan mentioned around the fact that uh, existing shareholders have been exposed to EOH for so long. They've gone through the worst of times with EOH. And at this point, you're now sitting there saying, but is, is it really where we want to be from an existing shareholder level? Um, from a returns base as well, I mean, you have to look at the the outlook and the direction that EOH now wants to take. I mean, we know that they want to pay down some of the debt with the funds that they're raising and that sort of thing. And that's all uh, good and well from a, from a management perspective and a, and a plenary perspective, um, if you look at the strategy that they're going for. But I think at the moment, the, the, the main thing with investors is to say, we, we've had so much exposure to EOH for so long, we've lost so much uh, from an investment standpoint. 
Um, we want to take a more cautioned approach to uh, seeing where we go from here. Uh, and if things go the way they should or the way we've been told that they'll go, then I'm sure the, the, the stock price in time will recover. Mm, okay, let's hope so. Let's hope it doesn't fall too much further uh, from this point. Okay, just on that, um, uh, the, the, I'm sticking with you, Jimmy, uh, considering that your lights went out there um, just before we got to your view on EOH. There's a question on load shedding beneficiaries, clearly not us. Um, but the, the question is, with the push to load shedding alternatives on everyone's mind, what would be the preferred pick of the panel between Invicta, Hudeco, and Roynitz? Jimmy, sticking with you, I didn't actually realize that Hudeco had now kind of... A, well, I suppose expanded into into alternative uh, energy supplies or uh, businesses, at least with regards um, that are involved in the sector. Um, but if you had those three shares to to consider, which would be your pick? Well, I think of the three, um, I'd probably be leaning at the moment towards um, Roynet. Uh, I'd, I'd say I'd want to probably just see what Udeca is now doing with their recent expansion and their um, Plans. I haven't had too much time to look into that in detail, but I think at the moment, um, if we're looking towards the alternative space, it still has the same pressures that we've seen from uh, from a local perspective. Certainly, uh, things around the the regulatory um, hurdles that might still face companies and and the costs to implementation and that sort of thing. So even though the load shedding problem is going to drive us towards uh, these solutions uh, on a larger scale, I think the cost to implement cost to implement for the businesses as well as for the consumers as well at the end of the day is probably going to be a factor to uh, to look at alongside whether or not the, they'll be able to implement that scale uh, on the regulatory side of so jimmy your preferred pick was roynet um i think it uh, yeah it's what just below 60 rand so it's had a really good run year to date jonathan um the other companies mentioned by the viewer were, were invicta and hudeco and of Hideko latterly uh, talking about um the power sector um within its business uh, do you have a preferred pick or, or are there companies that we're not thinking about? I mean, Ellie's is tiny, but, you know, th that's, that is also something to consider. Look, um, I do concur with Jimmy. My favorite of those three is Roynet, possibly also with a bit of bias because I know a bit more about the company than the other two. Um, having said that, in their latest set of results um, that they released, they did mention that their solar business um, or their photovoltaic business, um, renewable energy business, uh, they continue to make good progress there um, and they continue to grow from strength to strength in order to capitalize on the buoyant renewable market. So besides that, I mean, it is an engineering business that is geared towards um, the energy sector especially with its cabling business. So, you know, in my mind, I think Roynet's in a very, very sweet spot. Um, it's been through a tough time the last two years, but in the last set of numbers, they've done extremely well. And that would be my preference okay. ahead of the other two. Um, but I think, you know, I would have to do a proper analysis of the other two mm. first, um, you know, to, 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 con to confer that um, properly. Okay. But that would be my pick at the outset. Okay. I mean, just can I ask about your views on Hudeco? Because they came out with results on Friday. They were they were very good. Hudeco is a really solid company. It's been around for ages. It's got a very low-key management that just puts its head down and gets on with the business of being Hudeco, it seems to me. Um, Jimmy, 
I mean, one of the things that they actually said was, Hudeco has outstanding potential were there to be better economic conditions in South Africa. Um, and, and I don't think they're blowing hot air here. You know, they've actually said for years now that um, government has to come to the party with, uh, with the right conditions for South African businesses. Um, and Hudeco kind of, they talked about it's, businesses are just going to kind of slowly grind their way through um, the economic situation we find ourselves in. If there is any sort of improvement, do you think a company like uh, Hudeco or Invicta would show kind of immense gains and, and that they would start to get noticed by investors on the JSE? I think that there's definitely merit for them. I mean, if you look at their um, 2022 results, for example, I mean, their revenues were up um, 12% or so. Uh, and I think their, their net profit was up nearly 20% as well. So they're, they're, they're doing really well and they're remaining resilient in a difficult time. Um, and th that's, been, that's been the standout thing. I mean, if you, if you look at all of our uh, performing stocks and you look at um, everything from sort of 2020 when the pandemic started to where we are now, um, stocks like your financial stocks that have been um, that have remained resilient through times like COVID, um, we, we've seen that uh, where markets have remained resilient, and South Africa in particular, where our equities have um, shown that that level of strength through those difficult times, we've seen investors um, go or flock towards our markets when um, there's uncertainty and when they're looking for more attractive um, risk-based returns. I think Budeco, where they're positioned at the moment. Um, probably not um, at the same scale as, as Roynet is at the moment. I'm sure they've got some things in the pipeline that uh, they're looking to, to deploy as well. But from, I think from an investor standpoint, you definitely want to be uh, positioned uh, where markets are recovering or where markets are showing signs of having bottomed out, uh, particularly for facing the, the potential for um, re a recessionary environment. We know that the um, Saab locally has already forecast that we're going to have very low growth prospects for South Africa for this year and for next year as well. And that's been echoed by institutions like the World Bank and the IMF as well. So um, companies locally would want to be stri um, strategically realigning and strengthening their balance sheets ahead of these sorts of headwinds because it's going to be a different set of headwinds to what we saw uh, around the pandemic. And I think Hudeco, if the management team has that in mind and has that um, as part of their strategic uh, focus, then they could definitely be a stock to watch uh, in future as we start to come out of a more difficult time. Okay. Um, and there's a question, if we're talking about difficult, difficult times on Murray and Roberts, um, asking whether it's a buy, hold, sell, or, um, or completely avoid, um, and why. Uh, Jonathan, have you cast your eye over Murray and Roberts lately? No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you're haven't. avoiding the issue of Murray and Robert. Is that is that uh, is that correct? Yeah, I'm I'm avoiding that. I haven't looked at it for some time. So if I can pass that on to uh, Jimmy, if you don't mind. <laughs> okay, Jimmy. Um, I mean, is this a punter's is this a punter's dream? Yeah, you know, in the same vein that Avenge was, say, two years ago, or is mm. it a little bit more tricky than that? I mean, I felt that Avenge was quite a binary option, uh, but I don't know. Maybe Marion Roberts is too. I think I think for for me, um, similar to to how Jonathan's uh, viewpoint on the market is at the moment is for me the construction space is um, still very much a, a cautionary approach in terms of looking at how everything's structured. We know that a lot of the um, plans that the construction space had and and, and things like 
looking at the, the size of their order books and that deliverability of that has been a problem. And in part due to the lack of infrastructure development coming from the South African government, and that brought it through to the likes of Marion Roberts, the likes of WBHO as well. And I think looking at a stock like Marion Roberts that's sitting at, uh, what, two rand, two rand 70 at the moment might be worth a punch. But for me, the, the main concern around um, the construction space is very similar to the mining spaces. It's going to be dependent on the ability to deliver on uh, inventory, deliver on order book, and ability to actually finalize and execute product. Um, I'm sorry, constructions. I mean, we've seen um, stocks like Avenger that have recently signed on new deals, um, but they're doing it offshore in the likes of Australia um, to, to offset against the, the potential delays that you might find in South Africa. So Murray and Roberts having um, the same, a similar sort of reach as well would probably only be appealing to me if I'm starting to see traction on the infrastructure development side and the construction side of the business uh, or construction sectors at the moment. For me, at the moment, the construction sector is still going to go through quite a bit, especially if we go into what we spoke about earlier around a recessionary environment and um, we need to be offsetting against other economic conditions that might be affecting investors. Yeah. So very, very tentative at the moment from my side, not looking to get in at the moment. Okay, yeah. Of course, Marion Roberts went overseas, and it's its overseas project that have really hobbled it, uh, partly thanks to COVID-related delays, trying to get projects off the ground, um, the timing, they've got uh, big, big penalty clauses that they're trying to fight, uh, and it's put a cash squeeze on the business, so maybe we need to wait for a bit more information from the company. Jonathan, um, there's a question on Tungela, whether it's a good buy now. You saw, well, I don't know if you did, but July and Love were apparently saying that there would be strong demand for coal for decades to come. Um, I guess he would have to see things that way um, because there he is certainly talking his book. Uh, would you agree with him? So look, I like Tungela. Um, I think that the commentary came out of the mining in Darba today in Cape Town and he's yeah. very bullish on it. Um, so I do agree with that to a large extent. And the fact that they are now looking to buy an Australian mine um, in Queensland to diversify away from South Africa and to get into a new market and supply that Asian region is a positive. Um, I guess the big question is, you know, is the coal price, is the demand for coal going to remain as buoyant as it has been over the past year or two um, because of what's going on in Europe with the war? And... If the case is that it will, well, then I think Tungela is still one um, to keep. Um, you know, it all boils down to profitability. And I mean, these guys have been uh, spewing cash in terms of making money. And it boils down to that strong coal price. Yeah. So I guess one's going to take a, a view on supply and demand of coal, um, world coal, and how much these guys can continue to benefit from it. Yeah. So I do think Tungela is still good. Um, you know, one will see in the next set of numbers. I'm not sure when they due, probably March, April, but I'll have to check. Having said that, I like Tungela still. Okay. Jimmy, very quickly before I get to your stock picks, um, the, the acquisition in Australia, is that um, a, a plus for you or a big red flag? Because many South African companies have come a cropper in Australia. Not necessarily uh, uh, resources companies, admittedly, more the retailers, but... Mm -hmm. It, for, for me, it's the biggest plus um, for Tungela that I'm seeing recently. The, the, the headache that Tungela and other mining companies have faced at the 
at the mercy of Transnet, uh, particularly if you look at Tungela having been South African focused up until now, this is yeah. a huge uh, win for them. It's great for them to diversify at this stage and reduce their concentration risk to the okay. South African market. So okay. big plus from my side. Okay. Just sticking with you, Jimmy, uh, what would you be buying at the moment? Difficult uh, in the current climate, but my stock pick is the Crane Shares CSI China Internet ETF. Um, it provides a good level of exposure to the Chinese market, which we're forecasting is a where a lot of the demand is going to come from um, for the next year. But if you look at the weighting and the holding within uh, the ETF, I mean, it's not too heavily weighted towards one particular share, but you've still got exposure to the likes of Tencent, Alibaba, JD.com, Baidu. So for me at the moment, um, Chinese markets are going to provide leading demand for the year. And I think that ETF is a fairly balanced approach towards that. Okay, great. Uh, Jonathan, how about you? Right, I'm going to go with a big telecoms company called MTN. Um, they came out with an investor update um, for the 11 months um, ending November in December, and it was actually a very good update. Um, you know, they basically said the, the, the business is resilient, turnover growth is going to be at least in the mid-teens, um, then they're looking to drive that return on equity up to 25%. Um, you know, I was just messing around with some numbers and the first half year-end HEPs was up 46% for the first half. And I'll just say, look, if they can grow headline earnings per share by 30% for the full year, that puts them in at an earnings level of around 12 Rand 87. Might be a little bit um, underplaying it because um, I think they could do a bit better. And um, they, they, they've indicated a dividend of around at least three rand thirty a share. Um, we PSG, we've got a sum of the parts valuation of around two hundred and eighteen rand, based on various metrics. Okay. Um, still, bearing in mind it was there, and yeah. you know it's started to improve quite nicely since yeah. I think late late last year. Okay, and then they don't have a Ghanaian tax problem anymore, it seems. So that's also a plus. Oh. Um, okay, gents, we have to leave that's it there. Inflicting to touch. Yes, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Nice to chat to you both. Uh, Jonathan Fisher is from PSG Wealth, Santon Grayson, and Jimmy Moyaha is an independent analyst. And Zanati is back with Stockwatch tomorrow night. Have a good evening. <laughs>